Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy Show podcast. I'm Pippa Shawley. In 2016, analysis by the Ella MacArthur Foundation found that there could be more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050. Two years later, in 2018, the foundation launched the Global Commitment, conceived with the UN Environment Programme to form the biggest global voluntary effort to tackle plastic waste and pollution. Half a decade on from that launch, we're publishing a new paper reflecting on what has been learned since then. I sat down with Sandra Defret, who leads the foundation's plastics team, to explore the paper's findings. We discuss the impact of this voluntary action, the hurdles that still need to be overcome, the need for a legally binding global treaty to end plastic pollution, and what makes him feel optimistic five years in. I started by asking Sander about the scale of the problem today. Today's plastics economy is is very wasteful and polluting, and, and beneath that sits a very linear plastic system, a, a take, make and waste system where we take resources, um, the vast majority of that fossil resources, we make plastics, most often for single use, and then we waste it at the end. And the, the numbers um, on that are, are quite staggering. If you look at plastic packaging as one example, almost all of it is single use. The, the percentage, percentage of reusable plastic packaging is, is probably one to two percent max. Um, it's estimated that just 14% of that plastic packaging is actually collected for recycling, while a staggering one-third is ending up in the environment, and more than half is landfilled or incinerated. And as a result, plastic pollution is everywhere, and it's posing a threat to our, you know, to nature, to climate change, as well as to our human health. And so recycling must be part of that, right? So the collection of it and making sure it doesn't just end up in landfill or incineration. But circular economy goes beyond that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it absolutely goes beyond recycling. So recycling is is one part of the circular economy solution, but but it's actually only the the solution of last resort. Uh, it's absolutely crucial that we start by eliminating the plastics that we don't need. Uh, that is avoiding the unnecessary plastics and packaging. But it goes far beyond that in terms of rethinking the packaging altogether, rethinking even the product itself or the business model. And, and a few examples of that are, um, what if cucumbers are not packed with a plastic packaging, but with an edible coating? Uh, or what if we shift uh, from liquid shampoo to a solid shampoo and drastically reduce the amount of packaging needed to to uh, to get that to, uh, to, to the customers or, or end users? Um, or what if uh, home care products come in a concentrated form little tablets that you pop in a bottle, add some water at home, and you have your same uh, home cleaning product. All of that would drastically um, reduce the amount of packaging we need. So start with eliminate. Secondly, is is innovating the the packaging that we do need and designing it reusable as much as possible. And in any case, always recyclable or compostable. And then finally is circulating. So actually ensuring that the packaging we put on the market is actually reused, recycled or composted in practice. So keeping it in the economy and out of the environment. So that whole comprehensive solution is is needed and, and recycling is just one part of that solution. We'll, we'll, we'll obviously not recycle our way out of this uh, and recycling alone is not the solution. And you've talked a lot about packaging there. What about plastics beyond that? Yeah, the, the, our focus is is on is on um, packaging, uh, but obviously plastics is used in in many more applications, from 
toys to building uh you know construction industry to cars to uh the clothing we we wear so uh all our, our entire global economy is um predominantly a linear economy and and quite wasteful so we definitely need, need to shift to a circular economy for for our entire economy not just for packaging um but for um my work that, that i'm leading here at the foundation that the focus really on um on packaging and it feels like you've been very busy recently. I mean, I know looking in your calendar, <laughs> you're back to back. Um, but today we're talking about particularly the global commitment. Um, it's been five years since that launch. So maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about what that is and what what the goals of that were. Yeah, the global commitment is the world's largest voluntary effort to tackle plastic waste. It was conceived by the Ellen McCart Foundation together with the UN Environment Programme. Um, back in 2018, and, and we, we really wanted to bring together key stakeholders as an early attempt at a, a globally coordinated response to the problem. It's important to position the global commitment in, in the, that kind of context of where we were in 2018, when there was very limited and, and at best fragmented action on the topic. There was absolutely not a shared vision of where to go uh, across all the stakeholders. Um, so launching the global commitment really marked uh, a moment where we brought together a, a group of leading stakeholders from business, from government, from NGOs to, to all get behind a common vision um, and, and as such try and start um, uh, start to lay critical foundations that you know we hope to evolve to to, to much more broad system change beyond that uh, that leading group. Um, so that's what what it set out to do uh, five years ago. And when you talk about that action, what kind of things do you mean? So the signatories of the global commitment have all got behind a vision which has a, a, a few different aspects to it. Um, and, and to bring that to life, we've also translated that in 20, concrete 2025 commitments or targets that the signatories are working towards. And those targets range from eliminating some of the most problematic um, packaging items, materials, and, and formats, um, uh, in, uh, st starting to take action to move more from single use to reuse, making sure all packaging put on the market is reusable, recycled, or compostable, increasing the use of recycled plastics instead of kind of new virgin plastic materials, um, and uh, also reducing the use of um, virgin plastics uh, as a, a bit as an outcome of, of all the actions mentioned above. And so it's been going for five years. It's there's, I mean, just looking around supermarkets and other places, plastic's still there. So how is it going? What have you seen? What have you learned along the way? Yeah, and I'll probably answer that question in in two parts. And one is looking at the global commitment specifically, and and how has the first five years of that been? What has been the impact? And then secondly, um, zoom out a bit and look look at the world as a whole and, and where are we solving that that problem and if I look at the global commitment I, I think it has had um, an immense impact across four different dimensions from mobilizing leading stakeholders to delivering progress to learning along the way and catalyzing action beyond the global commitment itself if I take these one by one, in terms of mobilizing leading stakeholders, um, is a bit what we mentioned earlier, where uh, we started in 2018 from fragmented action, no common vision, no common language, um, virtually no company with a comprehensive set of targets to address the problem, to now more than a thousand organizations all sharing one vision, the same definitions behind it, 
all working towards the same set of 2025 targets uh, and having mobilized dedicated teams and more than $10 billion of investments towards achieving that. So it has mobilized a lot within, within the signatory group. When we look at delivering actual progress, um, here uh, the picture is, is, is fairly nuanced. So on the one hand, we know and we've been transparently reporting every year. So, so we now know that uh, the signatories are not on track to meet all the 2025 targets that, uh, that, that they were aiming for. And at the same time, if we compare the signatory group to the rest of the industry, the rest of the global plastic packaging market, the signatory group is significantly outperforming the rest of the market on, on almost all target areas. Just to give a few examples, they, they more than doubled their use of recycled content from around 5% to around 12%, on track to more than triple it by 2025. And that while the world as a whole has increased their recycled content by just one percentage point. Um, and just to add one um, fact to, to show the scale of that, so that the increase of recycled content by the signatory group uh, is equivalent to keeping one barrel of oil in the ground every two seconds. So that's um, 30 barrels every minute or 15 million barrels every year. Um, they've also stabilized their use of virgin plastic. Um, and that's compared to the market growing their use of virgin plastic with 11% over that same five-year time period. Uh, if you compare these two, it means that um, the group has avoided 2.8 million tons of virgin plastics per year. That's equivalent of the total plastic packaging use of uh, of the UK in an entire year. Uh, this group has has delivered meaningful progress, um, while not as much as they uh, originally intended, so not fully meeting the 2025 targets. Next to mobilizing and delivering, learning along the way was a critical one. In 2018, many signatories took a bit of a leap of faith signing up to the global commitment because many of them didn't have the data or the visibility um, even internally in their organizations on how much plastic packaging they were putting on the market, let alone how much was reusable, how much was recyclable. There wasn't even a common definition of what recyclable really meant uh, or how much was recycled content, etc. That's um, versus today where all these signatories are annually and publicly reporting their progress all using the same metrics, same definitions, making this fully transparent. And that transparency helps them make better decisions, but also creates, um, you know, is also used by NGOs, policymakers, investors to engage with these businesses to inform their own actions. Um, and then finally, th that transparency has also helped us to now five years in really shed a light on what are the areas where strong progress has been made and where it's demonstrated it is possible. Now, what are the areas where progress is lacking? So it has helped us identify um, some pivotal hurdles that we see uh, even this leading group is, uh, is struggling with and is hindering progress. And then finally, after mobilizing, um, delivering progress, learning along the way, also catalyzing action beyond the global commitment group has been a very important part of what the global commitment has delivered. Like from the start, we knew bringing together a leading group um, is a great start, but we need the whole system to change, not just this leading group. Um, and therefore, um, catalyzing, you know, by, by mobilizing this leading group, also catalyzing action beyond that was, was a very uh, important ambition of the global commitment. And I think on this front, um, it has been really successful. If you just look at 
beyond the Alamacarta Foundation and, and UN Environment Program, who, who launched the global commitment, also many of the major other initiatives in this space, um, from WWF to World Economic Forum to Consumer Goods Forum to RAP to Systemic, they've all endorsed the global commitment vision. And having all these major initiatives sharing one vision is really powerful. Then we've mobilized more than 11 plastic packs. So there's our country level initiatives uh, around the world um, that again, share that same common vision and work towards targets that are very aligned to the global commitment targets. Um, the framework, the vision, the definitions of the global commitment has been picked up by um, UN uh, principles for responsible investments or UNPRI uh, for their investment investor engagement guides. There is a tourism plastic initiative built on the framework of the global commitment. There's a consumer goods forum plastic waste coalition of action. Um, again, working towards um, the, the the framework and the vision of the of the global commitment. And then there's the CDP reporting. So that's one of the world's largest um, environmental disclosure systems. They are now expanding their ex uh, disclosure of of company progress to plastics. And again, using the global commitments and um, reporting and definitions as the basis of that. So that allows us to expand this reporting from a few hundreds to multiple thousands of businesses reporting their progress. Um, it has informed policy. So that's progress the global commitment can, can be proud about. Um, uh, but at the same time, and here we come to zooming out from the global commitment to the world. At the same time, it, it's equally important to recognize that the world as a whole is still far off track of solving this problem. 20% of the market signing up to the global commitment is, 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 is a really big amount. This is, is, you know, very large in terms of scale, but it at the same time means 80% is not signed up. And we've just seen that that group is on average performing way worse than this signatory group. On top of that, the signatory group itself is not fully delivering on the 2025 targets and struggling with pivotal hurdles. So if you take that all together, um, the world as a whole is, is still far off track of uh, of solving this problem. And so we need to take yeah, the learnings of these five years to, um, to inform the next steps and, and accelerate progress. So while some progress has been made through the global commitment, the project has also uncovered a number of hurdles that need to be overcome in order to make further progress. I asked Sander to expand on what those challenges are. So what we've seen is that there, there are certain areas, um, eliminating problematic items, um, increasing recycled content, uh, etc., where, where the, the, the signatory group has made significant progress and as such have demonstrated that it is possible. Uh, so there we call on other businesses to, to replicate that and follow that example and call on policymakers to um, kind of mandate that progress that, that is demonstrated that is possible at, at a very large scale. But then there's also areas where progress is lacking and where we've identified pivotal hurdles. And, and the three most important ones we've identified at this stage are uh, scaling reuse, addressing the issue of flex, uh, flexible plastic packaging, in, in particular in, in, in high leakage markets where they're ending up um, in the environment, um, and the lack of infrastructure to collect and circulate these packaging um, in the economy and, and keep them out of the environment. Um, so if I take them one by one, like, like scaling reuse, we've seen our signatories take more action than, than ever before. In 2018, reuse wasn't even really part of 
um, of the strategy for most companies wasn't very high on the agenda um, the, over the past years. The momentum has increased exponentially and, and many signatories, um, more than half of them have, have launched all kinds of reuse pilots. But when we look at the actual ad scale impact, the share of plastic packaging that's reusable um, has remained roughly f- flat below 2% of, of all plastic packaging. So um, really scaling, reuse, bringing that to scale is, is one of those pivotal hurdles. So going beyond the pilots. Exactly. Yeah. We, we at some point, um, you know, these pilots are great and we, and we need to continue to invest and need to uh, continue to learn. But at some point, if we want to solve this problem, it, it needs to lead to scale uh, because without scaling reuse, uh, we won't really solve this problem. We can't do it with recycling alone. Um, so this will have to be an important part of um, of the solution. The second one is is flexible plastic packaging. Um, the 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 little wrapper sashes, like the the cookie wrappers, all of that, the the small flimsy stuff. Um, they are um, the fastest growing uh, segment of the plastic packaging market because they are very kind of resource efficient, lightweight. Uh, but they're also because of these same properties, actually very hard to um, to deal with after they've been used. Um, and in particular in, in markets where there's no formal collection systems to collect packaging after use, because they're so small uh, and have like very little intrinsic material value, uh, also the informal waste pickers um, are not interested in picking them up because they, they don't have any economic value to them. Um, so they uh, represent a disproportionate share of all the plastic packaging ending up in the environment. And to give you a, sh- a sense of the scale, um, every second, 25,000 flexible packaging items are ending up in the ocean. And at the current growth rate, that number would double by 2040. Um, and if you look at that whole time period from now to 2040, that would mean a staggering 20 trillion flexible packaging items would end up in the ocean. So that problem absolutely needs to be um, addressed uh, urgently in order to solve this problem. And then finally, the third one is is the infrastructure to collect and circulate um, packaging after use. Um, while the solution absolutely needs to start upstream, we need to reduce the amount of packaging we put on the market, needs to make sure everything we do put on the market is as much as possible reusable, is designed recyclable. Um, but then at some point, um, there also needs to be infrastructure to to actually collect and reuse and recycle them uh, in practice after they have been used. Um, and we know in many parts of the world that infrastructure is um, is still lacking. Um, one of the main reasons, but not, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons is that the economics um, don't stack up. The, the cost of collecting, sorting and recycling packaging is just higher than, than the value you get out in the end. So we know that we need uh, funding to go into the system to make the economics work. And we also know it's, it's widely recognized by, by many stakeholders around the world that extended producer responsibility policies. So policies where the companies putting the packaging on the market are also paying for um, collecting, sorting um, and reusing, recycling them after uh, after use. Um, that that's the only that policy is the only way to really get that funding mobilized and to make the economics work. So so we urgently need to see that policy implemented all across the world. It, it is already there in, in some parts of the world and it is um, increasing more and more, but but we really need to accelerate that. I need to see the whole world um, adopt those uh, EPR policies in order to get that infrastructure established. So you've outlined the learnings from 
the global commitment so far and some of those um, hurdles that you've got to overcome, how do you do that? What comes next? Well, I think there's a few things. I mean, it, it's very clear that voluntary action can be very impactful. And the global commitment ha- has shown it has had an impact in in many ways. Um, so we need to continue to accelerate that. And we need to significantly accelerate um, policy action because it's equally clear that with 80% not um, stepping up voluntarily, with even those leading players not fully meeting their targets, we'll, we'll need policy to... Um, on the one hand, mandate the progress that's proven possible. On the other hand, really focus on those pivotal hurdles to try and um, overcome these and and help the market move um, faster and further. And, and there's a few things here. I mean, one is uh, of course that the global treaty negotiations next um, next month or in or in two you know in, in a few weeks from now um, the the third of five planned negotiation rounds of such a treaty is starting. So we're getting into the final year, the final stretch of negotiations. So we absolutely need negotiators of, of all the countries around the world to, to understand that this is a, a very unique once in a generation opportunity um, and need to, um, you know, building on some of these learnings from the global commitment and, and other learnings out there um, to really put in place some globally binding um, rules and measures that can massively accelerate progress. So that that's a, a really big opportunity we have there. Um, and what do those rules look like that you're that we're calling on? Yeah, I think we we you know first of all we we want them to be globally binding rules, and and you could look at this plastic um, treaty as the equivalent of what the Paris Agreement is for climate change. They're negotiating a similar agreement on plastics. And we want this agreement to um, kind of look structurally different from the from from the Paris Agreement in the sense that there the main element is all countries uh, you know they agree on the kind of overall ambition of one and a half degree um, temperature rise, uh, but then it's really leaving a lot of freedom up to all the countries to submit their action plans um, without even any guarantee that all those action plans actually add up to the overall ambition. We want this treaty to go further and have legally binding rules that really say these are ru- these are things, measures, actions that all governments that are um, signing this agreement or treaty need to implement. Um, and the ones we want to see are, are obviously starting with, with upstream um, measures, looking at how can we reduce the amount of virgin plastic produced? Uh, how can we uh, have reuse policies in place that, that help stimulate reuse, help overcome the pivotal, hur- pivotal hurdle of, of reuse that we just talked about? Um, how can we eliminate some of the most problematic items? Um, our leading signatories or leading businesses here have shown that can be done. So how can we get the whole world to do it? Same on recycled content. How do we get the whole world to follow that lead, and then the extended producer responsibility policy that that we um, talked about before as well. Um, how do we get that policy to be adopted globally? So these are a few things that we believe are are well suited to turn into global measures and, and global rules as um, as part of such a treaty. And what else? What else is coming up? You've talked a lot about reuse there as well. Yeah. So um, policy very important. Um, equally. There will always remain a role for voluntary action. You, you, this is a complex system change problem. You, you can't turn the entire solution in, in, into a policy or into a set of policies. Um, also because 
for some of these pivotal hurdles, not all the solutions are necessary out there. So business actually will continue to be important to, to keep demonstrating what's possible, to keep innovating and, and finding new solution, solutions. So also from our side, um, uh, we are we, we will take the lessons from five years of global commitment, both the successes and, and, and the shortcomings, um, to now inform the, the future of the global commitment. Um, as voluntary action will remain very important, we also want the global commitment and, and leverage that platform to, to keep driving that. And, but the context is now very different than 2018. We have all these learnings from these five years, so we need to think carefully about how do we design the next phase of the global commitment. And, and therefore, we're, we're currently starting a process together with our signatories um, to work that out and see how do we um, design the future of the global commitment in order to further accelerate also the voluntary action and, and do that in a way that's complementary um, to that global treaty, that's informing that global treaty. So that's um, yeah some of the key priorities for, uh, for us. And... It's a huge challenge and one that you've been involved in for several years now. And you've definitely set out the the need for this to happen. I wonder what makes you optimistic about this change? Yeah, it's it's always a, a, a tricky one. And I guess um, there's always, if, if you take the perspective of looking back, it, it's always fantastic to see how the amount of action and progress that we're seeing now is 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 literally an order of magnitude bigger than what we saw five, ten years ago. Um, at the same time, if you take the other perspective and compare that with the scale of the problem, that scale of the problem is is another one or two orders of magnitude bigger um, than 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 the solutions we've um, we've delivered to date. So, um, you know that that first uh, perspective leads to kind of optimism that second perspective is 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 a little daunting um but we have no other option than than to just keep um working and pushing as hard as we can because we know the scale of the problem is is still far beyond where we are today um uh, so yeah we need to keep uh, keep working as hard as we can and and some of these unique opportunities like global treaty negotiations generally generally hope we will we will capture that opportunity or if the negotiators of the treaty will capture that opportunity um as that could be one of these moments where um yeah you can actually um change gears and uh, in a short amount of time uh lead to to another significant acceleration of of progress and just remind us of the time scale that we're talking about here to get these changes a reality so for the treaty, um, the negotiators have set out um, an ambitious timeline of negotiating a treaty in, in, in two and a half years. So they're having one negotiation round every six months. Um, now in November, they will be having the, the third negotiation round taking place in, uh, in Nairobi this time. So that's a third out of five. So they're kind of halfway the negotiations um uh and when i say ambitious timeline i mean two and a half years for for negotiating a global agreement is actually very short if you compare that to other big environmental problems like climate change etc it, it took uh, over a decade to to get there so in, in that sense it's 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 short of course we um we have a major problem to solve we, we don't have time to waste um so i do hope they they stick to that timeline in particularly for um 
yeah, priority sectors like packaging and, and other sectors that um, are uh, have a high likelihood of, of leaking in the environment or, or have a high rate of leaking in the environment that they tackle these as a priority within um, the next year, within that first two and a half years. So it's so one more year to go for those negotiations. And, and hopefully by then we come out with a with an ambitious treaty with a few very concrete globally binding uh, rules and measures in there. So to sum up, we need more ambitious policies, with the global treaty being a key part of that. And this should be complemented by continuing to accelerate voluntary action. That means replicating and mandating the progress that's been proven possible over the last five years. But it also means focusing on those pivotal hurdles Sander mentioned, scaling reuse, addressing flexible plastic packaging, and establishing infrastructure to collect and circulate packaging after it's been used. If you'd like to hear more about the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's work in plastics, or read the new paper reflecting on five years of the global commitment, you can find the links in the show notes of this episode. Thanks to Sander for joining me, and thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the circular economy. See you then.